Welcome to Talking Supply Chain. In each episode, you'll hear from the authors that make Supply Chain Management Review such a special publication. This podcast is hosted by Bob Troublecock, Editorial Director of Supply Chain Management Review. Remember that Bob welcomes your comments now to today's episode. Welcome to Talking Supply Chain. I'm Bob Troublecock, and for this episode, we're taking the podcast on the road to the Trincaro Family Estates Bottling and Production Facility in Lodi, California. We're going to learn a little bit about the supply chain side of the wine business. I had the privilege of writing about the Trincaro facility a few years ago in the February 2018 issue of Modern Materials Handling. You can read the article on MMH.com. I'm here today to attend a Swiss Log customer event. Trincaro is using SwissLog's unit load ASRS technology in its facility, and I'm really looking forward to touring a facility I've only seen in photos. Joining me for the episode are Kent Mann and Marcus Schmidt. Kent is the Vice President of Operations at Trincaro, and Marcus is the President of SwissLog Americas. Marcus, Kent, welcome, and thank you for inviting me. Hello, Bob. Thanks for, thanks for being here. Very proud to show you our system um, tomorrow, supervised by, by Trinchero. And you will see super fast moving, very compact pellet storage. But of course, always a good opportunity to talk to you about other emerging topics in the industry as well. Great. And Ken? Finally get to meet you in person, Bob. It's great. <laughs> and welcome to California. Um, I really enjoyed collaborating with you on that article. It was a lot of fun for me and the company was really impressed with well, what's interesting about this is that I meet everybody over the phone. <laughs> so, yeah. it's, yeah. and, you know, post you and I did it in 2018, post COVID. We do now meet, you know, on, on video. But when you and I did it, we were literally just voices on the telephone. I got to see your photo. You didn't get to see mine. <laughs> <laughs> so, Kent, to kick this off, why don't you tell us a little bit about Trincaro Family Estates? My listeners may have enjoyed your wine, but aren't familiar with your name. As an example, I was not familiar. I drink a lot of wine. And I was not familiar with the Trincaro name, even though I owned and had drunk, you know, a number of your brands. Well, the name uh, Trincaro Family Estates contains the word family. And of course, we're proudly a family owned company. And uh, I believe uh, strongly that we're kind of in the forefront of, of uh, really innovation and uh, exploring new ways of making wine and distributing wine. And also in between those, those two processes, doing whatever we can to really take care of our people and uh, at the same time using technology and, and innovation to advance uh, ourselves as the number, the second largest family-owned wine company, fourth largest wine company. I was going to ask you about the second because I, I remembered it, that from 2018. Tell us a couple of the brands, you know, that people are going to be uh, familiar with. Sure. Well, our biggest brand is Sutter Home, 10 million cases. Almost all of it is made right here in Lodi. Uh, second largest brand is Menage a Trois, not far behind oh. at three, around 3 million cases, uh, super premium level. And um, we also have some big partnerships with Joel Gott, as an example. So all Joel Gott wine is made uh, within our facilities and, uh, and then distributed uh, through our network of, of uh, distribution. You have a couple of, uh, of also some very nice premium wines. Exactly, yeah. And I think that we, we have a really wide range of price points and styles to hit all the consumers that uh, we're targeting, um, everything from that Sutter home that's going to be 
$5, $6 a bottle uh, and an exceptional value because of the way that we make our wine and we, we have really, really close attention to quality. Uh, up to Trinquero Napa Valley, our flagship uh, in, in St. Helena, and we're making 100 to $200 bottles of wine there. Um, before we talk about the facility, and, and I want to come back when we talk about the facility, is something you, you talked about in terms of being at the forefront. Um, you know, many of the listeners are going to be familiar with things like how you make a car, you know, from the start to the end and things like that. Wine as, as, a, as an agricultural product and also a living product, what are, in, in terms of the production process, what are the steps, I guess, starting with harvesting to delivery to the end customer? Sure, we do own and operate a number of vineyards throughout the state, um, always tended throughout the year. We also have a rural relations uh, group that is uh, constantly in touch with our uh, contracted growers, shepherding the, the grapes through the process throughout the year to, to hit that style target that we're going after, to, to screen those, those specific grapes, those vineyards to specific products. Um, as the grapes are ripening, there's a lot of um, sampling in the vineyards and making the right call for when to, when to harvest. And then we're actually just started the harvest a couple of weeks ago and um, we're in, in full harvest at, at, all of our, at all of our facilities at this point. So the grapes will stream in, uh, the, the, the lighter varieties, the whites will, will come in first, Sauvignon Blanc, Pinot Gris. Uh, we'll slowly move into uh, Chardonnay. There'll be some overlap with Pinot Noir. And then we'll finish the harvest with the red, with the Merlot and the Cabernet uh, Sauvignon, and dozens of other varietals that we use in what I call a spice rack um, <laughs> way. So we, we, when we blend a wine, if it's going to be called a varietal, it needs to be 75% of that great varietal in the wine. But the other 25% can be whatever our winemakers um, would like to use to hit style targets to blend. for that, for that, yeah, yeah, for that, for that, uh, for that product. You know, in almost any industry we would talk to, they're being um, really impacted by e-commerce. Now, I know that there are. We were talking before we hit the button about um, you know things like Wine.com. For retail distribution, but are the individual wineries, wineries like Trincaro, being impact? You know, everything that we wrote about and what Swisslog did is, you know, how case handling, right? But are you having to get into the e-commerce side where you're shipping, you know, less than case, mixed case, single bottle, and things like that? And how, if so, how's that transforming your operation? Good question. We actually did our own direct-to-consumer business for a number of years. And as the e-commerce, um, I would say, network or e-commerce channel exploded, we found that it was best to partner with another company that does this uh, as their business. So we partnered uh, with a direct-to-consumer um, partnership in, in uh, South Napa Valley to, to ship all of our wines. You can visit the one-stop wine shop uh, that Trincaro has to buy any of, any of our wines and have them shipped to you. So it's it's your website. You're yes. you own the customer relationship, yes. but then and, and I know from wines that I've bought online when I look at the when when I look at the label, you know, regardless of the brand, when I look at the at the label, they often come from the same shipper. Fulfillment is is accomplished through a company called Wine Direct, which is really right down the road from our our biggest Napa Valley bottling facility in America. 
So um, let's go back to and talk a little bit about this facility that, that you uh, did in partnership with um, Swiss Log. You mentioned when you were talking about and describing Trincaro wanting to be at the forefront. Mm -hmm. And my memory that when you began designing the facility in 2015, it was going to be a first of its kind in the winery business. So first, tell me a little bit about the facility, but also when you're putting that together, what did you want to accomplish that you weren't doing? And why and how you embraced automation and technology in such a big way because that was unique i think for the industry when you did it yes it still is uh, i don't know for how much longer because <laughs> we, we serve as an excellent example for how to do it right but i call it an end-to-end -end production facility for its size and scale uh it, there's nothing like it and um really it was uh it was growth that we that was really driving us to to, to do what we did in lodi we had run all of our facilities in the Napa Valley with pretty traditional technology, older technology. And as, uh, as we continued to grow pretty strongly, we said, let's do this right. Use some of the latest technology and automation to, to leverage this great piece of land that we have in Lodi, which is incidentally 15 miles away from most of our grape sources <laughs> and, uh, and, and establish bottling at this facility. So before that, I mean, we've been there for 25 years in that, in that location in Lodi, but we hadn't really leveraged it to the point that we are right now. Um, purchased the land over three different uh, purchases, 1997, 1999, 2013. It's about 500 acres total. We actually uh, had vines on, on, the, on the land for a period of time, and we built tanks, and we used it as a storage facility and a blending facility. and. Um, we didn't even start crushing until 2013. We didn't start bringing grapes in to make wine until, until 2013. So the wine that we would take there or even make there would ship by tanker over to the Napa Valley where we would, we would bottle it. We'd bottle Sutter Home in Napa Valley. We'd bottle all of our wines up and down the Napa Valley. And um, it was time to invest in technology. And we, uh, we partnered with some, some key... Um, some key I would say equipment uh, sources, best in the industry, and uh, including the Swiss Log um, component of our facility. And it was about speed and quality. <clears throat> if I think about what we did, we, it was really focused on ensuring that we had velocity and flow and we could support the, the big volumes of wine that we wanted to, to make and, uh, and, and bottle. Um, all the while upholding our quality expectations. We, I don't think there's anybody better than us in the industry when it comes to quality and attention to, to what goes on the shelf. Our shelf, our shelf presence is, is almost perfect. I wish I could say it's perfect, but when you're selling 22 million physical cases a year, <laughs> it's hard to be perfect. But uh, yeah, and it, it was a pretty amazing undertaking to, uh, to bring all that equipment in, um, lay out the, the lines the way, the way they're laid out, really establish flow from end to end. So grape come, grapes come in, we make the wine, blend the wine, uh, finish the wine, it goes into the, into the bottle, into the bottling room, never touched, and it gets into the automated warehouse after it's bottled. And then the first time it's touched is when one of our plant lift drivers takes that pallet off the end of the staging lane and plants it into the truck. So it's pretty lean when it comes to manufacturing. Uh, Marcus, you do a lot of different industries. Um, and so when you think about that facility, and of course the, the, the part that you and I are interested in, 
um, although I'm interested in the end product, is really that part after it's been, you know, sure. all the magic that happens <laughs> sure. up front, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that, that's where we come in. But, but what strikes you about that facility? I mean, f for me, of course, if I look at the site and I see a very large scale bottling operation, right? That is where we interface and we get a, a large number of palletized goods, mm -hmm. which is all wine in boxes, right? Which need to go somewhere, right? And so our automation um, takes those pellets, stores them away by skew in a very dense fashion and, and um, a very high speed type of setup with the product, which we call power store and then ships it out to the shipping area in, uh, in sequence as needed um, for transport. And, and, and I think what makes the facility so, so special is really that it was done in one go, right? Mm -hmm. From the beginning to the end, well thought through. And there's not only first-class warehousing, I'm very sure there's first-class winemaking and um, filling operation at the same time. Okay, a couple of quick facts and figures. Uh, square footage, how big is it? How many pallets can you store? You know, how many bottles can you bottle an hour when you're bottling that sort of thing? There are, the whole facility, the, the bottling and warehouse facility is 660,000 square feet. The warehouse takes up about 400,000 square feet. Uh, high density, incredible. Uh, we can store four and a half million cases in, in, wow. uh, in a very 180,000 square foot rack, essentially. And um, three bottling lines right now, room for a fourth. So when it was designed, we made sure that we had the opportunity to, to, grow, to grow within the space. We're running two glass lines, a 400 bottle a minute, 750 milliliter line, a uh, 300 bottle a minute magnum line, and then a 600 bottle a minute, 187 milliliter uh, yeah. line. And we run three shifts in two lines and two shifts on another line. So we still have capacity within one of the glass lines. Flow is, um, is, is great. We're, we're bottling 100,000 cases a day, 90 to 100,000 cases a day. When, when all three lines are running, all, all three lines are running all three shifts, we can, we can produce close to 25 million cases a year. Do you bottle all year round or is it seasonal? Yes, you, you bottle all year round. bottle all year round. So there's constant pressure, constantly bringing wine into the bottling room. And has Lucy ever stepped on grapes in your wine? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, 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 we would uh, have, to, have to take her aside and give her a safety brief. <laughs> no, so, we're, we're, and we're, we're introducing pallets from the bottling lines into the automated warehouse. It will store, like I said, four and a half million cases, about 65,000 pallets. Um, and we've got some other floor space that we use to, to, to store uh, product. We like the fast moving stuff to go into the into the automated warehouse because we want that flow. Oh. We're constantly working on what's called compaction, which is the efficient utilization of the space. Mm -hmm. And um, when we first when it was first built, we were told we could get eighty five percent compaction, but we're up to ninety two, ninety three percent. We've done a lot of things to be able to optimize the usage of that of that equipment. Uh, at, at, at really sprint speed, it can do up to 250 pallets per hour in, at the same time ship 250 pallets per hour out. We've got six people on the shipping side that are shipping over 20 million cases, physical cases a year, one shift. That's not a capacity issue for us, uh, the shipping side. The capacity issue for us is really the storage space because we, uh, we, we are a seasonal company because people buy more wine during the holidays, they buy sure. more wine in the summertime. And our peak inventories uh, end up showing up around April, May, and then also right around this time. Yeah. 
preparing for the October, November, December. You mentioned that, you know, before this, that your facilities were conventional, which sounds like manual, and you introduced an off, an awful lot of automation. That's often a transition. So, you know, how did that change your operations and how did you bring your personnel along? You know, was that a challenge? It was a tremendous challenge. I wish I knew now what I, uh, then, I wish I, I, I knew what I do, but, um, we could have used a better change management process, but we still were very successful. We we uh, we tackled it in a couple of different ways. In the bottling room, we hired a bunch of uh, mechanics and controls technicians from local uh, food and beverage manufacturers who shut down, and uh, and they laid their their people out. So we pulled from Campbell's, we pulled from Procter and Gamble, General Mills, and and those were are super talented people. And they came in. We've got many of the ones we hired are still with us, and uh, they were able to quickly um, really learn all the new systems that we have in the bottom room, all the controls, automation that we have there. Very similar to what they were used to at, at, at Campbell's and, and uh, General Mills. And then uh, we seeded. So that's the, the equipment is one thing, but we seeded the workforce, the operator, the, the production workforce, with people from the Napa Valley. We brought over about fifty people from the Napa Valley to bring the TFE way with them and to help train the new people. We hired well over a hundred people here locally initially, and we continue to have a pipeline of people into the facility, but Lodi, Stockton, Sacramento locals have been hired. We created a lot of jobs. Over 300 people are, are, are operating, are working in our at any given time. So um, brand new people had to learn, struggled a little bit for maybe six months, and then they got the hang of it and, and, and we were off. Um, in the warehouse, different, right? That was the that was really the great unknown was cutting over to a to a fully automated warehouse right. uh, that had to integrate uh, SAP and the, uh, the 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 power store automation software together. There was a lot of work done in advance between IT, our team. Uh, we also hired a, a, a outside resource to help, and along with SwissLog representatives. So we got together, uh, really gamed a lot of scenarios. The integration went fairly well. Um, a lot of processes were written. Then when it came time to turn it on, we shut down shipping in the Napa Valley for one week and we brought our entire warehouse crew over because they all transferred over. Ah. And they had to learn uh, all the lift mounted um, devices and they had to learn how to scan and enter uh, all the information in SAP. So there was a week, one week long, very rigorous training session. And, uh, and then we brought, it, brought the system back up and, and started shipping relatively seamlessly, yeah. but a ton of preparation, a ton of training mm-hmm. and the right people. And, and it sounds like you didn't have the pushback, particularly because this was probably because it's a greenfield facility. Yeah. You didn't have the 30 year, you know, 30 year veteran lift truck operators at this other area. Well, it's funny because um, you think that they would bring that with them because they were seasoned veterans. Yeah. Of, of TFE, the ones that we brought over, but we, at the beginning, we marketed it as something special. Well, you, you have to market something like this with your people. I, I you know, we, marketing, people think about marketing, think about selling a product. You market in magazine or in the media, but I like to think that we market good ideas and engagement with our people. And we did that constantly and they felt like they're in something special and they love the place, right? I mean, it's beautiful and they're part of something really interesting and new in the vanguard of the industry. So they were super enthusiastic. Over time, 
that drive, because a lot of them live in American Canyon and Napa, mm -hmm. that drive wore, wore them down. Uh, I mean, we've been operating now in that facility for seven years. Yeah. And we lost a couple to other, um, other employers back in the Napa Valley, but sometimes it didn't work out for them. They didn't like it, so they, they came back to us. But also, I promised all the people that came over to Lodi, I said, if you want to go back to the Napa Valley, when there is an opening, I will work at getting you back into the Napa Valley. So almost all of the warehouse people have been able to return to the Napa Valley. And it's almost an entirely new Or at new least those team. who wanted to go. Yeah, the ones that wanted to go. Same in the, in the bottling facility as well. Marcus, yeah. I'm gonna, let's step away from Trincaro just for a second because um, you know, there's lots of interesting things going in uh, on in the material handling side, the automation side right now. One is, you know, we're all in the middle of these unprecedented disruptions, right? Um, labor, uh, that screams out for uh, automation. I'll be talking a little bit about that uh, tomorrow. What are you seeing in the marketplace and has the traditional justification for automation change? You know, it used to be yeah. <clears throat> reduction to headcount. Yeah. Um, is it now gone to mitigating the labor shortage? What do you yeah. see out there? Yeah, I mean, I see, of course, a couple of trends emerging here. Number one, supply chain seems to be super important to everyone these days. Yes. Right. So that has changed. In the past, supply chain was this evil which someone had to deal with, and now it has become a strategic, strategic advantage if companies have that under control. Right. The second is I do see a drive towards much higher level levels of automation and sophistication in the supply chain. And that is probably partly driven by the labor shortage situation we have. Mm -hmm. uh, business cases in the past were really calculated based on, I look at a solution which is conventional, I calculate how many people I need. I look at an automation solution, I calculate how many people I need and the difference in headcount need to pay for the additional investment, mm -hmm. historical way, right? Mm -hmm. But now, of course, a lot of companies cannot credibly build up a manual type warehouse operation, knowing, not even for the business case, right? Knowing that they will not get the people anymore. So the whole business case topic has been put upside down and it has become partly strategic to invest in warehouse technologies and solutions, which longer term will need much less dependency on the labor force, which of course, Swissstock as a company is very pleased about because that's what we do, right? We offer solutions which increase automation and sophistication in warehouse operations. When you mentioned that, you know, everybody's now aware of supply chain, um, I did an interview with the chief supply chain officer for Flex, what used to be mm -hmm. called Flextronics, uh, Flex. Her name's Lynn Terrell. And she said that one of the byproducts of COVID is her mother now knows what she does for a living. And she said that she, she got a call from her mother one day going, are you okay? Yeah. And she said, I'm fine. Why? And she said, well, I saw about this ship stuck in the Suez Canal. And I thought that that might be impacting your operations. She said before that, my mother had no idea what, no. You know, what supply chain was. So a, another um, sort of market question, mm -hmm. um, Marcus. Um, Swiss Logs are, you know, you're North American president, Swiss Logs is sure. a global company, sure. and Swiss Log plays in all these different verticals. Uh, we're going to talk about pallet uh, and case mm -hmm. handling at Trincaro. You're also doing a lot of things in e-commerce and robotics. Thinking about those, you know, one, the different geographies, um, you know, Europe versus the U.S. or, you know, Europe and Asia versus the U.S., 
the different verticals and and those different you know dynamics um, you know unit load versus item just mm -hmm. give me the overview of, of what's happening yeah I can maybe go first a little bit by by kind of product group and then I will okay. compare to Europe as well so so number one pallet tending technology right is is a very large part of the market and has been very solid and is projected to be very solid as well going forward. Reason being is that general stock holding is increasing, right? Um, all of the imports which are coming across the ocean are becoming less predictable and a little bit more safety stock is needed uh, within the country. And to keep all of that efficiently, pallet type automation is needed. So there we see a consistent positive drive um, towards that segment, of course, right? Then, of course, the next is the case handling side, and specifically here in the U.S., case handling in large volumes was always and is still a large part of the retail operations, right? Retailers, they ship cases to distribution centers, they resort them by store, and they ship them out uh, in large quantities to replenish their store operation. That has not really changed. The only thing which has changed in that segment is that retailers really try to deliver those cases in a more clever way to the store so that the store can take benefit by those cases sorted in the right um, order and sequence and uh, aisle friendly so that the replenishment in the store becomes much easier and labor savings can be captured. So a move from shipping vast amounts to shipping still a lot of amounts but in a much more clever way. And then the, the third area is clearly the um, item handling, right? With COVID, e-commerce has gone up a lot. It would have gone anyway, but it has gone even more. And uh, e-commerce means individual items need to be picked and shipped. And that picking process is very labor intense. And that's why there's a large drive to see if certain articles or certain groups of articles can be fully automated on the picking side with robotic technologies so that labor is taken out of the distribution center for that as well. Interesting enough, um, the retailers in the store also increase the number of items they replenish as individual items rather mm -hmm. than full cases because they increase the number of SKUs and the, shore, the, the, the shelf space is not so plentiful available anymore. So I see not only item picking increase for shipping to end consumers, but also for replenishing the store bricks, bricks and mortar type applications here. Um, so that would be kind of the three things, pallet, solid, case, more sophistication and, and shipping more clever and the piece picking increases and more and more robotics will find its way into those picking applications here. Excellent. Ken, I want to wrap this up and talk to you about disruptions because I think, you know, every operator has faced something, whether it's, you know, I couldn't get Coke Zero in a 12 ounce can for a while because Coke had no cans. So over the last two years, you know, what's been the biggest challenge you've confronted as an operator and how have you mitigated it? Do I have to pick one? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, the, the one that we still face I'm is, your I'm your guest. Go ahead. Well, you were, you were, um, you were alluding to this. Staffing is, continues to be a huge challenge for us. I think we're lucky in that we, um, we have weathered this better than most in the industry, this pandemic. A lot of it is because we're a great employer. And um, 
I think we've got the best recruiters that you could have in our employees because that's how our pipeline of people is replenished is largely through word of mouth. But we haven't had that much turnover. The great resignation, I don't see it really within TFE. We see turnover. But um, the daily stuff is what really hurts. Every day, you know, we're under these emergency uh, orders by, by the government, the Department of Public Health in California, pretty strict guidelines around COVID and symptoms and how, how you have to keep people away for a certain period of time, how you have to notify people, how you do follow-up testing. There's a ton of things that we have to do every single day. I just came out of a meeting and I've got 10 people on the quote-unquote COVID list and they could have a cold, but they could have COVID. Well, but in any case, they can't come to work. At, the, at its worst point, 10% of our team was, was off for COVID protocol. And that's hard to manage manage when you've got everybody else uh, doing their thing as well. I mean, there's PTO, there's other reasons why people miss work, but this was COVID, it was something new. Um, someday I hope to get through this. We've weathered it so far. I think we're veterans of it. I don't want it to continue, but we can we can do it for an extended period of time. I think it's pretty great to belong to a company like TFE because every day during the pandemic, the early part of the pandemic, call it a year and a half, every day early in the morning, we would have a meeting on the phone with the, the family members. It would be the CEO and all the execs and we just talk about people and what we're gonna do next uh, in order to ensure that we could staff our teams and continue to um, to, to do business and, and uh, ensure that we're shipping to the customer. So the staffing is the biggest one, but I would also say supply of raw materials because there's a lot of different components um, when it comes to packaging a bottle of wine. Right. And if any of them have an interruption, then it could it could trip you up. Uh, we schedule our, our, our lines pretty aggressively and, and uh, sometimes things are um, just in time. Raw materials are just in time. Uh, don't like it to happen all the time, but sometimes there'll be an interruption because there's they're having a problem with staffing or the, one of their components was delayed and et cetera. So raw material delivery um, has been tough. We hedged against that and uh, overbought a bunch of standard supplies, taking up a lot of space, but it kept us moving, kept us running. And then lastly, shipping finished goods. Uh, and it's funny because I think we're kind of in a transition period because for the longest time, we were having trouble bringing trucks in mm-hmm. to, come pick, to come pick up uh, products. And um, we would typically, all of our trucks come in their appointment. They have appointments. And we would typically have 5% no-shows, but it, that grew to 15, 20% during the pandemic, which was difficult to, uh, to support. And then um, imports and exports, the delays uh, in, in transiting the oceans mm-hmm. has been really a, a hit for us as well. I went to the Port of Oakland a few months ago. Not only was it severely congested, but there were no chassis. The reason why there weren't any chassis is because all the drivers are hoarding them because there's no chassis. Right, right. <laughs> there are no chassis. Right. Uh, so in the inbound raw materials, the, the people just to keep things running, and then the outbound finished goods have all kind of combined to create this very, very difficult work environment for us. But we've, we've weathered it. When, when you mentioned the uh, missing component, when, when I did the uh, Flex interview, she said that they, they have a saying uh, around Flex uh, that they refer to as the golden screw. Now, this was PG. And what, what, what she meant by the golden screw was you're making something like a rear view mirror for a truck. And you've got everything put together, but there's one specific screw you need to finish it. 
that might be 20 cents and they're out of screws and they, and they don't know yeah. when the next shipment of screws yes. is coming in. So they would have all these, you know, side mirrors, but for the want of the golden screw, you know, <laughs> to complete the thing. The golden cork for us. Yeah. Actually, I thought of one, and I promise this is less. Um, you put in an awful lot of automation. There's a lot of new things out there. So is there any technology that you're keeping an eye on that you're thinking that might be what we go to next? Uh, there are additional handling, there's additional handling technology that I'm interested in. I don't think we're ready to invest in it just mm -hmm. yet, but I would say that as well as some uh, inspection, automated inspection okay. systems. When it comes to people, they're just not as good as, as, as equipment, as, mm -hmm. as the technology can provide. But um, I'm very careful when it comes to um, that type of a move and certainly spend a lot of time with my boss to make sure that he understands how we would do that. I've had experience before in bringing automation in and being able to reduce staffing, but I've never done it uh, in a way that was painful. It was always been just natural attrition that I, I've been able to, to utilize to, to skinny the, the team up a little bit. But we still have a pretty big workforce. I mean, in, within um, this department, there's almost 400 people. In the modeling room alone, there's 150 people here in, in Lodi. Um, so there's a lot of work for people. And right. like I said, we're, we're bringing people in and there's constant flow. I call it people flow. It's good. People flow is actually good. Well, thank you. Um, that's all the time we have for today. A special thanks to Kent Mann, Margaret Schmidt, Frincaro Family Estates and Swiss Log for inviting me out here. And thank you for listening. I hope you'll be back for our next episode. And be sure to read that article on Frincaro Family Estates. I'm not going to call it PFE from now on. Uh, on MMH.com. Uh, for Supply Chain Management Review, I'm Bob Troublecock. Talking Supply Chain is produced by Supply Chain Management Review and Peerless Media. You can find it on scmr.com, on iTunes, or under SC247, or just Google SC247 Podcasts. For more information, be sure to visit scmr.com. We hope you'll join us again.